So today I'm talking about Israel in prophecy. Now we live in interesting times, don't we? We saw wars all around us. We see an uncertain economy. We see nations like Iran and Syria that uh, encourage and support terrorism. North Carolina, I mean North uh, Korea encourages terrorism. And Iran is openly calling for Israel's destruction that they had for many years while they're developing nuclear weapons. And men in Egypt, we don't know what's happening in Egypt right now, but we know that there's a large factions in Egypt uh, pulling the peace treaty into question, wondering if peace with Israel is even a good idea for that. And as a country, we in the United States have been attacked multiple times until in 2001, 9-11, when we finally figured out that we are at war against terrorism and evil. And some would argue that we haven't fully realized that fact yet. But we have troops in Afghanistan, we have troops in a number of undisclosed locations, I'm sure. And by the way, we need to pray for those troops daily, don't we? Who put their lives on the line. For us, And we need to mourn the loss of those brave heroes who give their lives daily in service to our country. I'm actually a military spouse. My wife retired from the Air Force uh, about eight years ago. So I, and I'm very well, much in touch with the military community in the Hampton Roads area. Um, every president in recent history in the United States has tried to resolve the Middle East conflict, right? And it's all been without success. And Israel, and if you really look at it objectively... And I mean objectively, it's one of the most compassionate countries in the world, is constantly accused of human rights violations by the United Nations. As the Arab nations and the communist voting bloc continue to condemn Israel time and time again. Israel is condemned while, if you look at recent history, real human rights violators like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and of Iran, Assad of Syria, the late Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, the late Kim Jong-il of North Korea. Comparatively speaking, compared to Israel, those real human rights violators get a free pass. And in fact, did you know that Israel has been condemned by the United Nations more than all of those countries combined? And not only that, but Israel is the only nation in the world not eligible to sit on the United Nations Human Rights Council. Yes, Iran gets a seat. Sudan, <laughs> all these countries get a seat. Israel's not eligible because they do it by continents, and no continent will claim her to rotate in, in with their system. So what's going on? This sounds crazy, doesn't it? Or for we have a few Jewish people here, this sounds mashugana, which means crazy. Why all this disproportionate attention to a country the size of New Jersey and its capital, Jerusalem? Well, the topic for today is Israel and prophecy, and we're going to talk about some future events that are surely going to come to pass. And before I continue that, I wanted to make something clear. I'm, I'm not a prophet. My father was a stockbroker in New York, and so I'm not even the son of a prophet. And I, I even work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> but so in that case, I'm going to have to turn to the Word of God for answers this time, if that's all right with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. When Messiah returns, he will bring peace on earth. But when is that going to happen? Nobody that knows the day or the hour. I, I know when he's not going to return. Would you like to know when he's not going to return? You know those uh, people that get on TV and say, this is when he's going to return? Yeah, that's not when he's going to return. I guarantee you that. And even if God was planning on returning, then he'd say, you know what? I'm not going to get, let this guy get the credit. 
<laughs> I want to change it a little bit. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. I hope you know that. So on those weekends, buy green bananas. It's okay. <laughs> You'll get a chance to eat them. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but I can't wait. But there are signs to alert us when the time is drawing near. Luke chapter 12, verses 54 through 56 says this. Then he said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? In this passage, Jesus was talking to a crowd of people. He said, just as you could tell physical signs is when the rain's coming, so you should also be able to interpret spiritual signs. We should be aware of the signs of our time and how they match up with God's plan. And if we're going to understand the timing for God's plan for Israel, if we're going to understand prophecy, if we're going to understand when the return of the Messiah is going to be, there are three lenses that we need to be looking through. The first lens is a geopolitical lens, and that's what's happening politically and geographically with the nations of the world. The second, lesson, the second lens is the economic lens. What's happening with the world economy? That's a very important predictor. We need to see that, and we can see how economic problems have led to wars and major upheavals throughout history. And the third lens is the lens of Scripture, and that's the one I will focus on today. I believe with all three lenses, we can see in three dimensions, but it's the third lens that's the most important. The third lens is actually the most accurate predictor. Amen? The Word of God. So the place to start is a pivotal passage in Scripture, a turning point in world history where God makes clear His promises and his intentions known. This passage also shows the beginnings of my Jewish people. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, and this is a pivotal passage in his plan. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you're having trouble finding it in your Bible, if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to it. It's also on the screen. But if you're having trouble finding it, turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, and it's right before that. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to resist what I'm tempted to do, which is to provide a very detailed study and just focus on this passage, perhaps in another time. But this morning, I just want to cover some highlights of the passage. In this story, we see a promise of a land. We see a promise of a great nation or people. And we see the promise that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the world. We will see that God will bless those who bless Abraham's descendants. And God will curse those who curse Abraham's descendants. You see, when you... Bless the Jewish people. You're participating in God's plan for the ages. Israel is a pivotal in God's planning for Messiah's return. It was pivotal in his first coming. Last time I talked, I talked on what? If you remember, I talked on Hanukkah. And I said, without Hanukkah, there wouldn't even be a Christmas. Why? Because if they're successful in wiping out my Jewish people, there wouldn't be a people from whom a Messiah would come. Amen? And so what, what a fitting thing is. What a fitting thing that is. It's no wonder that the whole world is trying to turn against Israel. If Satan is successful in wiping out Israel, if Satan is successful in wiping out the Jewish people, 
they won't be saying, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, where it says that, excuse me, I broke out in Hebrew for a moment, uh, where, where it says that, um, that, that, that Jesus said that that's what they will say before he returns. When you curse the Jewish people, you're getting in God's way. You're doing Satan's bidding, not God's bidding. And what is the purpose of this plan for the ages? It's all found in the last line. The last line of that verse says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's intention, notice it says all. The fa- now, I'm not an English scholar. I speak the language fluently, but all means all, doesn't it? Yeah. So God's intention was to bless both Jewish and Gentile people. God's intention was to bless the whole world. And we see a major fulfillment of that passage in the coming of the Messiah Jesus. So we see the center of God's promises. We see the center of God's prophecy. We see the center of his plan all having to do with the land, with the people, and a promise to bless the world through the Messiah Jesus. So as we examine the scriptures further, we see that the last days will be difficult times. There will be turmoil. There will be upheaval before there's going to be peace. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Actually, doesn't it sound like current times? But I believe that times will even get worse as we draw closer to the Messiah's return. Israel and Jerusalem are the keys to understanding the future events. And it all has to do with this one key factor. It all has to do with who is sitting on the throne. Who is sitting on the throne. It all has to do the ultimate, with the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when Messiah Jesus takes up his holy throne, when he rules up over all the earth, and we have already seen his first coming We've seen that fulfilled. And one day we will see his return just as surely as we've seen his first coming. Amen? But this peace doesn't describe the Jerusalem today. War permeates the city. It always has. How else can you explain that throughout the history of Jerusalem, it has changed hands 86 times. It has also been leveled to the ground 17 times. Yet Israel continues to rise out of the ashes. Jerusalem is the most important city in the world yet again. Now, I say that last statement without reservation. No other city in the world demands the focus of globe attention on a daily basis like Jerusalem does. Washington, D.C. is the only city in the world who has more reporters covering it, but Jerusalem is the only city in the world where God himself chose to dwell. Out of all the cities and the villages worldwide, that is where God came, that is where he stayed, and that puts Jerusalem in a category all of its own, doesn't it? 
One day Jesus will return to the city, and his feet will stand firmly on the Mount of Olives. And when that day arrives, Jerusalem will be transformed and will never return to the front lines of war. The days of conflict will cease. I want to give you some background on the modern conflict. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. Some of you may be very familiar with it and some not so familiar. We already know how Israel was taken over by the Romans and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, but let's fast forward to relatively modern times. The Jewish people have a long history. There's always been Jewish people living in the land, but most of the Jewish people were in the diaspora, were dispersed. My ancestors were dispersed and went up to uh, uh, Eastern Europe and fled persecution there, and that's how we wound up in the United States. Um, But in the 1850s, as anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe once again, European Jewry began to react, and a man named Theodore Herzl led a movement that resulted in Jewish people returning to the Promised Land, and this was in direct fulfillment with Ezekiel's vision of dry bones that I'll discuss later, when the bones came together. As the Jewish people began to settle in Palestine, I'll talk about that in a moment, they began to change the landscape. They began to transform deserts and swamps into farms and orchards, and which in turn tra- attracted more Jewish immigrants. And as the land became more appealing, Arabs began to move there as well. Before it was a barren wasteland, very few people, few people lived there, but as the Jewish people returned to the land, as they started making the desert bloom, it, be, it got the land much more attractive. Now notice a moment ago I used the word Palestine. Palestine was a Roman name for the Philistines, Israel's ancient enemies, who are now pretty much extinct. Anyone ever met a Philistine? No, they're they're pretty much extinct. In about 135 AD, Rome changed the name of the regions of Israel and Judah and Samaria. Rome changed it to Palestine as an insult to the Jewish people during the the Bar Kokhba revolt, as the Jewish people were were revoking, were rebelling against Rome. They they said it as an insult. Uh, And... And so the word Palestine is really the old Roman name for Philistine, is, is really what that is. And the Palestinians of today, they're not really Philistines, they're Arabs from the surrounding nations. And the term previously referred to both Jews and Arabs in the land, but due to a brilliant media campaign, a marketing pa- campaign by an evil person named Yasser Arafat, uh, he changed the meaning of the word to only refer to the Jewish people in the land. As Jew- I'm, excuse me, I misspoke. He changed the meaning of the word to only refer to the Arab people in the land. Thank you for... uh, Can we cut that out of the tape? (laughs) As Jewish immigrants to the land continued to grow as as more Jewish immigration came, Arab religious leaders began attacks on Jews by Arabs in the old city of Jerusalem, and that resulted in numerous deaths, numerous casualties. And so the Jewish people started to form small militias to defend themselves. By the end of World War II, the British asked the newly formed United Nations to take control, and it was then that the United Nations agreed to partition the land into separate states. And on May 14, 1948, following a narrow UN vote of partition, which was rejected by all the Arab states, the Jewish state of Israel declared its independence. The modern state of Israel was born. And on that same day, immediately after that, the countries of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq invaded Israel, and a six-month war of independence and survival continued. Israel lost control of Jerusalem, and finally a ceasefire was declared. 
A state of war with its Arab neighbors continued, and in the following decades, two major wars took place after that. So now we go to June of 1967. By the way, I'm doing a lot of history in a very short amount of time. In June of 1967, Israel was threatened by the combined forces of six Arab nations as they started to amass their troops on her border, saying, we are going to attack. But Israel made a preemptive strike. And in the six nations, in six days, she utterly defeated the combined Arab forces. She took control of Sinai, Samaria, the Golan Heights, and most importantly, the city of Jerusalem. And then Egypt's um, president, Anwar Sadat, vowing revenge for the Six-Day War, led a coalition of six Arab nations, and in 1973, they invaded Israel on Israel's holiest day, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. After a series of serious defeats where all could have easily been lost, Israel counterattacked and went on the way and that not only did they counterattack, but they had such great victories that they went all the way to the outskirts of Cairo and Damascus, Amman, Beirut. And it was only after threats from Russia that Israel pulled back, pulled back its troops. So after signing a ceasefire in the following years, Israel negotiated peace accords with Egypt and Iran. So beginning in 1972 and continuing to the present, war with Arab countries was replaced by terrorist attacks with the Arab Palestinians within Israel. These terrorist attacks um, and also pressure from the European Union and the United States forced Israel to seek accords granting autonomy to the West Bank and to Gaza. And so the creation of this two-state solution was formalized in Oslo, Norway on the 20th of August, 1993. The process has been called the Roadmap to Peace. Israel had pulled back from the West Bank, which is self-governed, but Gaza in the south has been under the control of a terrorist group called Hamas. Gaza often shoots rockets into Israel, prompting Israel to respond. Of course, Gaza shoots the rockets into Israel. Israel responds, and the world says to Israel, stop doing that. Stop, stop protecting yourself, <laughs> although they don't term it quite that way. Well, this was man's roadmap to peace. Worked out pretty well, didn't it? Man's roadmap to peace? Not at all. Man's plans don't work. God's plans do. But what is God's roadmap to peace for Israel? The first step is Israel's restoration of the land. A picture of this is found in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. And this vision talks about the manner in which God will restore his people. It is written in what's called apocalyptic literature. That makes it a little bit hard to understand. But that literature was more common in Ezekiel's day. But let's go through it together. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 37. Verses 1 through 10. Let's see what it says there. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there are many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, carve you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was 
a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. In this vision, God transported Ezekiel by his spirit to a valley full of dry bones. He asked the prophet a question. Now, have you ever been in, walking in the desert and seen these dry bones that are sitting out in the sun? Maybe from a, an old animal kill or something like that. Has anyone ever done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. Yeah, they look pretty desolate, kind of bleached by the sun. Am I right? He said, can these bones live? Now, what a question. On human terms, that's impossible. There's no way there's no life in them. But with God, nothing is impossible. So Ezekiel answers the question, O Lord God, you know. Only God who breathed life into Adam and who brings life from the dead can make these bones come alive. Then God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the dead bones and tell them, Surely I will cause my breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, then you shall know that I am the Lord. The Hebrew word for breath is the word ruach, and it could be translated as breath, it could be understood as spirit, it could be understood as, as wind, which which one was God referring to in this time? It's not obvious, but what is obvious is that God gave life to these dry, dead, sun-bleached bones. That is obvious. Then the bones came together, as we see in verse 7. Flesh developed and skin covered them, as we can see in verse 8. And breath came into them, and they stood up. Verse 10. Now, verse 11 through 14 contains the interpretation of this vision that Ezekiel saw. Let's take a look at that together. Ezekiel 37, verse 11 through 13. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, in order to understand Ezekiel's vision of dry bones, we should understand this. Let's, let's uh, kind of make it simple for you. These notes I got from... Uh, Dr. David Sadaka is one of the, uh, executive vice, the, the executive vice president of Chosen People Ministry, so I want to give him credit for that. The first one is the bones. The dry bones are the scattered, hopeless nation of Israel and the Jewish people during the diaspora as we were scattered throughout the nations. Now, there were some always Jewish people living in the land, but most of us were, were scattered throughout the nations, including my ancestors. So the next one is the stages of the bones coming together. That's the process while, as the Jewish people assemble themselves in order to restore the nation of Israel. And when did that happen? 1948. 
Can you name any other time in history where a group of people, where a people group, was scattered throughout the nation for centuries upon centuries, maintained their identity as a people group, and then reformulated back in their homeland as a nation? Never happened in the history of humankind. But through God, nothing is impossible. This reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948 is nothing short of a modern-day miracle. Hebrew, a language that was dying. It was practically dead. It was only known as a holy language at the time. Is now the national language of Israel and a lot of people's first language. Amazing. Only God could do that. You know what, which other languages that happened to? None. Latin? I don't think so. Not even close. Right? Anyone speak Latin? <laughs> if some attorneys may have studied some words from it, from, you know, for, for the legal stuff, or, but nobody speaks Latin. The third one, the body without breath. The Jews gathered, them, gathered in Israel who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They're missing the key element needed to restore the nation. This is where we're at today. Most of Israel, most of the Jewish people, whether in Israel or here in the United States or throughout the world, do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Did you know that the more conservative estimates have us at less than 1% believers? The, even the most generous estimates still have us at less than 2% believers. By mission standard, that makes my Jewish people an unreached people group. And so when you come alongside me in my ministry, what you're doing, and when you share with Jewish people, you're trying to reach an unreached people group. But a special unreached people group, the one that the Bible talks so clearly about, the one that Israel, that, that, that God has a heart for the Jewish people. As we, he has a heart for everybody. But we can see it so clearly expressed in Scripture in Romans 9 through 11. So the body without breath, the Jewish people who do not yet believe. The Bible talks about a remnant that will always remain faithful to him. And, and we Jews who believe in Jesus believe that we are part of that remnant. The breath of life, the fourth one. This is the final stage in the restoration of the, of the nation of Israel. This is when the people will recognize Jesus as her Messiah. Jesus as the Son of Man. So this is the basic timetable for where Messiah will return according to Ezekiel. And we can learn more about what happens right around the time when Messiah will return through the prophet Zechariah. So we're going to turn to that in a moment. And he talks about a prophetic scenario that happens about oh, one minute to 12, just before Messiah returns. And let's see how close we are to that. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of great tribulation. I know there's pre-trib and mid-trib and pan-trib and, and post-trib and all sorts of those theories. I'm not going to cover that uh, today. That's not my purpose for today. Uh, you know what pan-trib is, right? Pan-trib is when it all pan out at the end. Uh, <laughs> pre-trib is the rapture will happen before the tribulation period. Mid-trib is in the middle and post-trib is... At the... I'm, I'm not uh, going to cover with that. This, I'm going to cover something that all of them should agree with. Uh, this is the prophet Zechariah. And so this is almost at the time when Messiah puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. Let's see what happens. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of great tribulation. And we sadly learn that in, although I'm going to talk about Zechariah 12, we, but we sadly learn in Zechariah chapter 13 that two-thirds of the Jewish people will not make it through this time. In Zechariah 13, the Holocaust, how tragic that was. One-third of the Jewish people did not make it through. One-third of the Jewish people were murdered. There will be a time in Zechariah, which I don't like to talk about, but 
where two-thirds, but it's in the Word of God, so I have to. Two-thirds of the Jewish people won't make it through. So let's take a look at uh, Zechariah chapter 12, 9 through 10. It will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is a, so before I move on, this is a time when the nations of the world will finally act on their true intent. And I believe that true intent is satanically inspired. Their intent is to destroy Israel. You can, you can see if Israel is destroyed, then the second coming of Messiah will not come because there won't be a Jewish people to say, Baruch HaBab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. During the first coming, the devil actually thought that by killing all the Jewish males under two years old, remember that? By tempting Jesus in the desert, by doing everything he could to, to stop Jesus fulfill, from fulfilling his ministry, he thought he can get away with that. But the devil is limited. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He doesn't know he's going to fail. Or if he does know he's going to fail, well, he's trying anyway, but he's not going to succeed. But here the devil thinks that by destroying Israel, he can stop the return of Messiah. Of course not. But that's what the devil is trying to do. In verse 10, God, when Israel is about to be destroyed, instead of sending a military might, what does he send? He sends his spirit. Even more powerful than military might. Amen? Let's see what he says in, in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look upon me whom they've pierced. Wow. What a prophecy. Amen? And they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. The spirit of grace is poured out on the Jewish people and the spirit of God moves the remnant, whoever's left over, to look upon the God who, whom they have pierced. Now, when was God pierced? How can God be pierced? When did this happen? At Calvary. They will look upon Jesus face to face. And they will mourn for him. By the way, where is Jesus going to put his feet when he returns? He's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And uh, I don't have time to go through all this, but there's a very good chance uh, of a great book, Israel and Prophecy, back on the table uh, by Dr. Daniel Fuchs, who goes over this in detail about how the remnant may be gathered upon the Temple Mount waiting for the final destruction and that's when Jesus is going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, how many of you have been to Israel? If you have, a lot of you, great. And if you want to come with me, I'm probably going to go in the spring of 2015 again. So if you want to come with me, please come with me. I just got back a few months ago. But from the Temple Mount, you can see the Mount of Olives pretty easily, can't you? It's not that far. Just, a, just across the Kidron Brook. Not a huge brook. It's just a little brook there. They will look upon Jesus and mourn for him. National repentance. Israel will recognize as a nation Jesus is, is their Messiah. Let's see what happens. Let's go fast forward a little bit to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. For I, will all, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. I love this next verse. I want to Give a dramatic pause here. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against 
those nations as he fights in the day of battle. How would you like to be on the wrong side of that battle? And in that day, I was just talking about this, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. This passage in Zechariah talks about the events that will happen when Messiah returns. I want to make that clear. It talks about the events that will happen when Messiah returns. Let's not have any doubt in our minds. He's coming back. We don't know when, but he's coming back and these things will happen. Let's not act like they won't. All the nations will gather against Israel and all will look lost as Israel is ransacked and the women raped. Half the people will flee in terror will, have, will remain in Jerusalem. Then the Lord himself will go to battle against those nations. Jesus himself will step his feet on the Mount of Olives. And verse 9 in that passage, if you read on, it says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's when he's going to take up his holy throne in Jerusalem. In verse 11, we see that Jerusalem will be secure and never to be destroyed again from that point on. Things may get rough, but we know who wins at the end. Much will happen before then. Many will perish. We must not let the happy ending allow us to be slack in our responsibilities to share the good news with the people now. But there's hope and there's joy, but there's also concern for current events in the Middle East and current events in the conflict between Israel and her neighbors. For those who trust in the Lord and believe in his word, we know who is ultimately in control and we know how the conflict ends. But meanwhile, we should do exactly what it says in Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love thee. Everything is going according to God's calendar. Everything is going according to schedule. And when Messiah returns, and when he is seated on his holy throne, there will be peace in the Middle East. And there will be peace worldwide. Until Messiah returns, may we be faithful to proclaim his word. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17 says this, And how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord, uh, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? By the way, that's from Isaiah chapter 53. Then faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the word of God. If we fail to proclaim the good news of Jesus, if we fail to proclaim to the Jewish people that the Messiah has come, if we don't tell them they're not going to believe. It's our responsibility to share the good news with us as others have taken the time. I'm sorry, it's our responsibility to share the good news with them as others have taken the time to share the good news with us. So let, let's do a little summation here. Jesus is coming back. But when? Well, as we discussed a moment ago, there's some things that kind of have to happen before he comes back, according to the prophecies. And of course, there's a whole lot more prophecies than this. I kind of boiled it down. The, the first thing that has to happen is um, the Jewish people have to return to the land. And thank you. The Jewish people have to return to the land. Any chance of that? Yeah. They think it already happened, didn't it? Don't you? 
Okay? Well, then the second thing that has to happen is Jerusalem needs to be in Jewish hands. Any chance of that? It's currently in Jewish hands. And then the third thing that needs to happen is that Israel this needs to be surrounded by enemies. I'm not sure if you can see the map. You can see little tiny Israel there surrounded by enemies who seek her destruction. Any chance of that? Yeah. So you tell me, how close are we to Jesus coming back? How close are we to his return? Sometimes we walk around just doing normal things as if he's not coming back. When the second coming of Jesus is just around the corner. When is it going to happen? I don't know. But it could be very soon. Maybe not. But it could be very soon. May we live like his return is soon. May we live our lives. May we share our faith with everyone we know. For those of you who heard my testimony last time, um, I left a nice six-figure job. <laughs> to make the salary of a missionary with Chosen People Ministries. And it's in the support ways mission. Why? Because I believe he's coming back soon. And I want to bring as many people into his kingdom as possible. And so I just want to challenge you to do the same thing. And if you'd like to partner with me um, in, in ministry, that would be a tremendous blessing. As, and as you come alongside me, you're just as much a part of the work as I am because I can't do it without you. May we reach out to the love of Jesus, to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Let's pray.